Hello and welcome to The Stack. On today's show, we talk about Bon Appetit's annual restaurant issue, plus The Republic, a renowned political and literary magazine from Nigeria. And finally, football correspondent Andrew Downey on his latest book about the 1970 World Cup and how it changed football forever. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the new issue of Bon Appetit. It's that time of the year where they publish their annual restaurant issue. But this time, it's all different. The pandemic affected the food industry deeply, so the magazine changed some of the metrics to feature some incredible people working in the industry. To talk me through it, I had the pleasure to speak with Sonia Chopra, executive editor of Bon Appetit. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to be here. And yes, this year has been such a hard year for restaurants. And so as we started to put together our annual October issue, our restaurant issue, we really wanted to focus on the future. And we really wanted to, to evolve the issue to highlight some of the change makers and the leaders who have really been doing some amazing work to impact the restaurant industry and make it better. So in, in this issue, you know, we feature um, the restaurants that have risked it all to open in the middle of the pandemic. We are sharing these stories of, of people in the industry who are parents and who are really trying to balance, you know, their families and, and this industry, which can be so hard. And we also highlight the restaurants that we just can't wait to get back to. There is a really fun pear almond chocolate tart in there from a restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama that I've been dreaming about myself. So I'm really excited that that got in there. But the centerpiece of the issue is this heads of the table list that we've created. This is a brand new award for Bon Appetit and it's recognizing, we say the trailblazing, community building, future making leaders changing the restaurant industry. So we are so excited about that temple and, and what it stands for. And tell us about the, the process of finding these amazing people as well, because I'm sure it was a different process than just selecting the best restaurants. I mean, you wanted some, the story behind as well, which I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, um, our editor-in-chief Don always says, you know, come for the food, stay for the stories. And I think that ethos really comes through here. We wanted to dig deeper and we wanted to celebrate the people behind the industry for sure. So not just about the food that tastes the best or the restaurants that are the buzziest. Obviously, most of us were not traveling the way that we used to in the last year. So we really did want to think about restaurants and the people behind them that were inspiring, reforming, and building community. So we kind of asked ourselves, who's putting others first? Who's making the industry better? And, and we asked our teams and we asked you know, people that we work with, freelancers and people in the industry. And we came up with a long list of not just restaurants, but also people and organizations that stood out for their deep impact and the way that they're kind of changing things. And we vetted the list and we came up with these 12 winners. And Sonia, it's interesting, we were chatting before the interview that you, this is your first kind of print magazine that you used to work. I know you used to work with food. I think, I don't know if you agree with me, because one of the things I like about Bon Appetit, I mean, it's a food magazine, right? So you have to feel, I don't know, excited about the food you eat. The magazine looks beautiful. I mean, the cover, the articles, there's so much color. It's a really... I don't know, it's just quite vibrant as well. I mean, did you bring some of what you used to do with digital to the world of print or, <laughs> or, or, or is the opposite? Or are you learning as well with print? I want to know a little bit more about that. I definitely think it's a little bit of both. But one of the best things about being at Bon Appetit is the visuals. Our art team is amazing. The, the design and the photography and everything, it just it's just such a beautiful and impactful way to tell stories. And I think that 
print is such an exciting medium for that reason and for the way that you get to kind of interact with your readers. I like to think that I'm bringing a little bit of timeliness and news as well, right? As you know, when you work on a print schedule, you're working so far ahead. And so to kind of balance that, I was working in restaurant news before. So it was a lot of, you know, breaking news to the minute you were writing stories and they were going up the same day. So to find that intersection and that balance has been really exciting for me and, and hopefully for my team as well. Sonia, tell us about a recipe in the new issue that, I don't know, one of your favorite ones, because there's so many amazing ones. Uh, apparently, there's a beautiful one of a cake. Tell me a bit more. I love that cake. It's an apple hazelnut rye cake. It's from this baker, Bronwyn Wyatt, in New Orleans. The, the name of the bakery is Bayou Saint Cake, and it just looks amazing. It looks so seasonal, so perfect for fall, and I love the decor. The, the baker uses a lot of fresh produce, fresh flowers, and it, it just looks gorgeous. I can't wait to cook it. And as I said to you, it does look gorgeous. I mean, I, I, might, try, I might try to make it, but there's so many, <laughs> so many of those that I would like to try. Uh, Sonia, also another thing about Bon Appetit, I always like to ask, like, what's next? I know, you know, the new issues just come out. It looks amazing. What can you tell us about the plans for the rest of the year? Uh, probably you guys are already working with the November, December <laughs> issue as well in mind. Uh, what can you review to us? And, and especially now, I believe New York, it's opening up. I think the restaurants are almost back to normal, may I say. We hope so. You know, it, it, sometimes it feels like things are changing on a dime. But in terms of what I'm really excited about through the rest of the year, our Thanksgiving issue, our November issue, and our holiday issue are just so delightful. They are so filled with joy. All the recipes look amazing. The stories are great. It is so fun. These are our two biggest issues of the year, working in American food magazines, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and Hanukkah are such big holidays here. So we're really, really excited about that. And on the digital side, one thing that we're really excited about is extending our e-commerce presence. We're launching something that we're calling the BA Market. We're actually launching it next week. It's going to be an online store where readers and fans of the brand can buy ingredients and utensils, cookware, tablewares, things like that that have been curated by our staff. So there's a, a candle made by this olive oil company that I love. It's a digestive candle you can buy, you know, if, if you um, are reading a recipe and you see a certain ingredient or a certain kind of utensil or cookware, you can buy that as well. So we're going to start slowly and kind of ramp up, but we are really excited about that. Such a fantastic idea because, you know, sometimes say, oh, where can I buy this ingredient or, or, or related to one of your stories? I think it's an amazing combination. So next week, if you go to Bon Appetit website, you'll be able to find uh, the store, right? Yep, market.bonappetit.com. That was Sonia Chopra, and the October issue is out now. And now our Louis Harnett Omera speaks to Weili Lawau, editor of The Republic, a political literary magazine that goes out online and in print and is produced from Lagos, Nigeria. He discusses how he goes about producing quality journalism from a country that ranks low on the Press Freedom Index and how he seeks to empower storytellers across the African continent. We really consider our mission statement to be just providing the context that's missing. Right. And so we call that, you know, filling knowledge gaps, creating knowledge. It's this idea that in our, you know, ever digital world, there's a lot of noise going on and African coverage is suffering as a result of that noise. There's a lot of like repetition and there's a lot of 
stereotyping or a lot of graphic headlines that we, you know, that, that we're exposed to. And we know that the reality on the ground is much more complex and much more, you know, multidimensional. And so our job is to really make it easier for people to understand what is going on beyond the news, beyond graphic news headlines. And really how we've done that is, you know, by working extensively with local voices, with local freelancers across the continent, and then pairing them with experts on our team who can then elevate the quality of their writing and ensure that it meets, and in many cases actually exceeds, you know, global standards for covering Africa. And I think in terms of the scale of the coverage of, you know, of the coverage gap or the context deficits, which is what I call it, um, that we have at the moment, we just don't have enough people or resources to solve that through traditional models. So you, I mean, so a lot of people are having to really think about freelancing models, really think about really lean, digital heavy newsrooms. But again, you know, as we all become more digital, it's requiring a lot more digital skills than is currently available on the continent. And, and what do you think it is? I mean, is it just very basically a lack of resources and, and you know, flight of talent? I suppose a lot of people they might leave Lagos and, and they wouldn't necessarily come back to start a media publication as you have. So do, do you think that's to do with it? Um, so I think it's, it's many issues, actually. I think, you know, if you look at the history of media, not just in Nigeria, but across the continent, it's to do with, I guess, largely the relationship between local press and the government. I think there's no conversation you can have about media on the continent today without also speaking, you know, as to how it relates with the government. I think when you look at Nigeria specifically, we've had such a long history of crackdowns on the media space. And I think just even you know, broadly, one of the jokes that people have in the media is just how, despite all of that, the government still remains the largest you know, advertising buyer for a lot of newsrooms, a lot of like, you know, a lot of media newsrooms. And that's very interesting because you know, we're in a situation where a lot of audiences feel unrepresented and not just by foreign press, but also by local press. But then there's such a heavy reliance on advertising that a lot of local press don't feel accountable to them, you know, to readers. There's more accountability towards governments. And so there's really no, on the one hand, you have really no interest in investing in the stories that people care about, which I guess we can speak to as a kind of like has inspired other models you know, looking at membership models, subscription models, there's that going on. But more generally, it's still a situation where a lot more newsrooms are either facing crackdowns from the government or just don't have the incentive to produce journalism or media that the actual people want to see. Tell me, well, I mean, there's a skills deficit, but is there also, uh, is there a deficit in appetite? Do people do people really want to go out and search out these publications? Because you know, I associate, you know, these sort of highbrow intellectual publications with cities like London or New York. In Lagos, is, is there a big readership that really wants to get this or, or do you struggle with that as well? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think the way that we look at our audience is very much, I guess it's a very internet-y way of doing it. So we don't necessarily, yes, we focus on Nigeria, but we don't necessarily think of ourselves and we actually are based in Lagos but we don't think of our audience as just purely Lagos. I think we get a lot of traction. I think currently you have like the majority of people who read us definitely are Nigerian and they are based in Nigeria, but that's about maybe 40% of people who are based in Nigeria. And then the other 60% are Nigerians and other African curious people based you know, across what we call the diaspora. 
So there's a huge interest um, that we're seeing in this type of publication and this type of media from the diaspora. And that's also really influencing, also, I guess, spurring some traction here. And the way that it works is you have a lot of Nigerians or you have a lot of Africans abroad who have been exposed to the kinds of magazines that you were referencing, you know, magazines out of London, magazines out of New York, and they've, in some way or the other, you know, they do have some interest in seeing that level of work done for a Nigerian or African context, but that's missing, right, in the diaspora. And so for us, where we're then able to kind of meet that need is having, you know, a newsroom that's based here that also strives to meet and in many cases exceed those standards. And so the reason why it does have some appeal with those people in the diaspora is they're used to that, they're used to paying subscriptions, they're used to that level of quality, and it's part of an active culture that they're part of. And tell me, so you have given very eloquently the reasons why you are based in Lagos. Do you fear at all? I mean, to, to be a free and independent journalist, you, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, it has its, it has its risks associated with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I will not like, I mean, that's something I, I you know, I, I do not play around with. It's not something to, you know, to understate. There is a very, you know, the media space, particularly for journalists, it can be very hostile in, in Nigeria. And we're noticing a shrinking civic and media space. But at the same time, as somebody who has, you know, studied the space for a long time, it's also encouraging a lot of I mean, the response to that and how a lot of media newsrooms and not just the Republic have responded to that is by being, I guess, more realistic and more pragmatic with the kinds of stories that we're trying to tell and the kinds of people or the kinds of leaders that we're trying to hold accountable. I think the general industry-wide issue that we have is there's no protective media infrastructure right now for journalists, for newsrooms. There's like virtually none exists. It doesn't mean we don't have like journalism associations and and those types of things, but against the government, they're really, really powerless. What that has inspired and the kinds of newsrooms that that has inspired are newsrooms that are really playing a very long game. And when I think about the work that we're doing at the Republic, it's a very, very long game. And when we look at the kinds of issues that we try to tackle, these are really small issues. And the question for us is, if you can tackle those small issues and if you can grow by tackling those small issues, it does two things for you. It gives you really, you know, really quick wins that you can kind of learn from and, you know, that you can kind of build your capacity off of. And then it also gives you failures that you can manage. So one of the major things that we, that I find covering Nigeria is if you have a realistic scale and if you have a realistic or more pragmatic or let's say a less lofty goal with what you're trying to do, you can actually get a lot of traction and it does reduce you know, the risks and the costs that you face in doing that kind of work. And so we've done that you know, with, a couple of, you know, with a couple of different things. We've done that with the NSAS protests, you know, for example. And the major lesson from that has always just been you know, a way of really understanding what it is that we can do and a way of also ensuring that you know, if, if there are issues and if there are failures, we can actually manage those failures and then use those failures as areas for us to grow from. And um, tell me, so we've spoken about the kind of political aspect of your work. You also publish kind of literary writing and, and, and just good writing in general, and you're interested in that, which isn't always the case with a, a more politically inclined magazine. T- tell me more about that. Why, why, do you, why do you keep that kind of cultural element in there and, and what sort of writers do you look for there? 
Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's another great question. I think it's a funny one because we, this is something that we always discuss, which is, yeah, we want to cover like important issues, but we also know that just because something is important doesn't mean it's interesting. I think the real question for us is, you know, we want to cover these big issues. How do we make them engaging? How do we make them long lasting? How do we ensure that people actually enjoy reading these things? Um, and I think it's a couple of things. The first is, you know, like it's covering all these major issues, but in such a way that people don't get bored of hearing the same things all the time. And um, when we first started, what was interesting then was knowing that there were a lot of these issues going on around the world, but we weren't seeing a lot of African voices represented in those spaces. So for example, when people talked about climate change, when people talked about gender and sexuality, the big question was, are these issues, are people grappling with these issues on the continent as well? And at first, you know, that was the thing. Let's bring those issues. Let's, you know, really show that those issues exist and that Africans can really inform on those issues. But then, you know, as part of growing with our audience, it's also been a thing of realizing that, okay, people understand these issues. Now we know what the issues are. We know that we validated that, you know, that hypothesis that Africans are involved in these things. And so the demands are a lot more, there's higher demands on the level of writing. People don't just want to know about the issues. They want to actually be interested in those issues and they want you to make them interested in those issues as well. And so some of the questions people ask us now is, okay, yeah, we know about the issue, but what are people saying about them? How do we understand this in a way that actually relates to us? And that is actually when we then go back to proper just storytelling and really looking at, you know, what is missing in this narrative and how do we actually produce something that could be original, but also in a way that's engaging. There was Weili Lawal from the Republic. And finally on the show, the 1970 World Cup is considered the greatest in history, with plenty of goals and was also the first to be broadcast in color. It was the year that Brazil won with a team featuring legends such as Pelé, Jairzinho and Rivelino. Brazilian football correspondent for Reuters, Andrew Downey, just published a new book called The Greatest Show on Earth, the inside story of the legendary 1970 World Cup. I spoke with Downey on the meaning of this particular World Cup. But off the field, 1970, it was, it was a turning point for football. It was an iconic World Cup because it was the last in a World Cup of, I don't want to say the amateur era, but it was before big business and big money had invaded sport. I mean, there was no, you know, there was no major sponsors. There was no swooshes on the chest or three lines on the, on the shirts. You know, there was no boot sponsors and there was no match day minus one press conferences or anything like that. So football was still, you know, fairly innocent compared to how we see it today. And I think the main factor is probably that it was the first World Cup to be broadcast live and in colour. And I think that had a huge impact on people that were watching it because they remember seeing football for the first time in colour from the other side of the world. And it was in, it was sunny, it was golden, it was the sun-drenched, these sun-drenched afternoons in Mexico. And I think that really, really had a, a huge impact on people's memories. And it's nice as well that it was hosted in Mexico and again, Brazil doing so well. In a way, it was kind of a move outside just Europe and United States. It showed the kind of, you know, the other kind of powers, uh, not only in sport, but even Mexico, I guess, for hosting such an event. Exactly. It was the first World Cup for a while to be, well, it was the first World Cup not, not to be held in either South America or Europe. Uh, so it was being held in North America and Mexico. So again, that was you know bringing football to 
to another part of the world that, that hadn't seen it, but were, you know, football mad. I mean, the Mexicans are football mad. I lived in Mexico for a while and Mexico went crazy. They went crazy for their own team and then they went crazy for Brazil. When Mexico were out, Brazilian, the Mexicans threw their weight behind Brazil and even today, you know, Brazilians and Mexicans have this real bond that was formed because of the whole team in 1970 and particularly in Guadalajara, which is Brazil's kind of home away from home. That's so true. And, and Andrew, one thing that is fascinating about your book, I mean, I just realized actually it's been more than 50 years uh, that this World Cup happened. So in terms of your research, you managed to talk to so many of the players. And I have to say, I mean, it was the right time for you to launch this book because I wonder if you waited another 10 years or so, it would be even harder uh, because, you know, a lot of those players, they, you know, they're very hard to track, uh, difficult to speak to them. Some of them, sorry, they might not even be alive, actually. Yeah, that's exactly true. It was a difficult book to do because when, when it was proposed to me, when we came up with the idea, I mean, my first thought was, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to go around the world speaking to legends and I'll have a brilliant time. I'll go to Italy and to Germany and to Uruguay and Peru and you know, Morocco. I'll go to all these places and it'll be, you know, it'll just be great. Uh, it took me about a week before I realized that was not going to happen. It was a real, you know, quick realization that it was going to be almost impossible to travel on the budget that I had. And also because, as you say, there's there's very few of these players are still alive. The ones that are still alive, even fewer of them have a really great memory of 1970. And some of them, you know, demand or ask for payment for to be interviewed. And I just didn't have the budget to be paying lots of people for, for their memories. So, I mean, I got around this in, in two ways. I mean, I tried to interview as many people as I could personally. I took a lot of information from old archive searches, from autobiographies, from previous interviews, from documentaries that had been done, you know, all that kind of archive. There's a great archive in Sao Paulo that I used that was very useful for the Brazilian players. You know, Pele himself, he's written four autobiographies, plus a, a whole series about the 1970 World Cup. So these kind of things were a great help. Also, you know, the, then the pandemic came around, so there was, even if I had wanted to travel, it would have been very difficult. Uh, so what I did was I used a, a bunch of researchers. I got in touch with, with researchers and journalists in places like El Salvador, uh, Israel, Mexico, Belgium, Sweden, all these places that were not, the teams were not huge teams in 1970, but it was really important to me not just to talk to the players of Italy and West Germany and Brazil and Uruguay and England. I wanted to get a little bit more about these peripheral countries, countries that were had been to the World Cup or were going to the World Cup for the first time, perhaps. And that also, this was a big deal for them. So I got journalists, I hired journalists, and they did a fantastic job with a great help in tracking down one or two players in these countries and doing interviews for me and getting some first-hand recollections from players from those countries. And that's what I was surprised, actually, with the book, Andrew, because at the beginning, you know, when I saw... The book, I said, oh my God, it's going to be a nice, a beautiful analysis of Brazil's victory and everything. But I didn't realize that you were going so in-depth with the other countries as well. And I think for any kind of football nerd out there, I mean, it's fascinating because you don't only talk about the beautiful final between Brazil and Italy. You go even for the kind of the, the first round matches as well. It's a really, really interesting read. Thank you. It's really amazing today when you when you look back at 1970 and realize how difficult it was for teams 
in a place such as Bulgaria, for example, to know about their rivals. The Bulgarians, they would put together research dossiers on their opponents from reading German newspapers. People in their foreign embassies would try and sneak into football matches or go to football matches and watch their future opponents. You know, Morocco played one game between qualifying in November 1969 and kicking off in, in Mexico in June 1970 because the world was so much smaller then and football was so much more exotic because these teams didn't travel as much. There was no 50 Brazilian players in the Premier League or, you know, 20 Argentines in, in England. You know, that kind of thing didn't happen. So that, that exchange just wasn't there. So it was a lot harder and it made football a lot more exotic. But it was really important for me to get these other stories because I think they really shed a light about what football was like back in that in that period 50 years ago. And of course, you know, in the cover you have Pelé, but another beautiful thing, I mean, uh, a foreword by Roberto Rivellino, I think that's that's wonderful. I mean, uh, so you do you did manage to speak to some of the Brazilian players as well, right? That's right. You know, at the same time as I was I was doing this book, I was hired to work on a documentary about the 1970 World Cup. So we were able to go and, and sit down with some of these players, with players like Jairzinho, uh, Rivellino. And one of the, the best stories I have from, from that period was we interviewed Jairzinho in a flat in Copacabana and he turned up with a Botafogo shirt on. And I commented on his shirt because it had on the back Furacão. And he, Furacão means hurricane. You know, and Jairzinho was known as the Furacão da Copa, the hurricane of the cup, because he scored in, in every game. And I commented on his jersey and he said, you can have my jersey. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. You don't have to give me your jersey. How are you going to get home? He said, no, 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 I want you to have my jersey. And I said, okay, well, you know, you have to take my shirt and return. No, 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 no. And so he took off his jersey. I've got this great picture of Jairzinho and I standing holding his jersey. And he's got this big pot belly. He's like quite short and squat. And he, when the interview finished, he walked out into the street in Copacabana, shirtless, and walked home. He was walking home to Lermi, which is probably a couple of kilometers away. He was going to walk home shirtless after giving this interview, giving away his shirt. And it was just a, a great illustration of, you know, A, Rio de Janeiro, and B, you know, the generosity of Jairzinho after this great interview that we've done together. Oh, that's amazing. That That's really, and, and talking about imagery and kind of, and jerseys, there's some incredible images as well in your book. In fact, there's one by Roberto Rivellino. I thought he, he looked quite stylish, actually, with kind of a pink, a, a pink shirt with some kind of motifs there as well. One question for you. I mean, I know you still cover a lot of Brazilian football and everything. How did it change? Because I feel, even as a Brazilian, I feel that football is not as uniting in the country as, as perhaps used to be in 1970 or even 1904, I would say as well. It, it, it's a little bit more divisive. What, what, what would you say? Because I know you know a lot about Brazilian society and current football as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. I don't think there's the same support for football in Brazil and the same, not the same support for the Brazilian national team. I think a lot of it has to do with the last 10, 15, 20 years where Brazilians, you know, so many Brazilians have left Brazil at a young age, Brazilian players, that the fans don't have a chance to identify with them. You know, Vinicius Junior, Rodrigo, they were off to Real Madrid when they were still in their teens. You know, when Socrates and Zico were playing in the 1980s, they would go to Italy in their mid-20s. So they already had a real... The fans identified with these players already and with their teams. So that's one thing. I think also Brazil only really plays at home now in the qualifiers. It doesn't play the friendly matches 
in Brazil. Brazil play friendly matches now in the US. They play friendly matches. Brazil will play, for example, Argentina in London because it's easier for the players to, to get there. So that's also another factor. And I think one factor just in the last couple of years has been the rise of Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, who's adopted this, this yellow shirt and the Brazil flag as, as some of his, you know, some of the, the symbols of his, of his government. And so when you go to a protest, there was a protest here in Brazil in, in favour of Bolsonaro on, on Tuesday, where everybody was wearing yellow and green. Lots of people were wearing Brazil shirts. And I think that has turned a lot of people off. People don't want to be wearing a Brazil shirt because they don't want to be identified with this far-right extremist president. And, and, and I think that's another factor that, that plays into it today. That was Andrew Downey. His book, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Inside Story of the Legendary 1970 World Cup, It's out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to the show again at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. It's from 1970. It's by Brazilian singer Elise Regina with Madalena. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Fique